Državljan D. Podcast za aktivne državljane. Welcome everybody. It's uh, the 23rd of uh, May 2022, but you're listening to this recording on the 15th of July 2022. With us today is Francesca Muziani, uh, Associate Research Professor at the French National Cer- Center for Scientific Research, Deputy Director of the Center for Internet and Society of CNRS, and an Associate Researcher at the Center for Sociology of Innovation. Welcome, Francesca. Um, we we begin with with um, with your recently co-authored book called "Concealing for Freedom: The Making of Encryption, Secure Messaging, and Digital Liberties," in which you explore the political reasons and consequences of encryption and its impact on human rights in in the digital sphere. So, my first question to to start us off is. Why do you think there are so many different political facets to this question of encryption? Why can't we all agree that privacy is good and that encryption is enabling the privacy? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to, to be part of this uh, podcast. Um, so I, I think that the, the problem of encryption is a, uh, is a long-standing uh, uh, one. Uh, and uh, um, as uh, Laura Denardis aptly explains it in, uh, in the foreword uh, to our book, uh, is that um, it is really, there is a really big political charge Uh, to uh, to many technologies uh, of internet governance, but uh, in particular the the ability to apply encryption on one hand and break encryption on the other uh, has really uh, been a, a core problem that has uh, uh, crossed path with uh, a number of uh, uh, diplomatic strategies, uh, law enforcement strategies, uh, national security approaches. Uh, and uh, that is because uh, there is a number of uh, uh, scenarios in which uh, the digital economy, uh, communication networks, and so on, uh, really require uh, strong cybersecurity, including uh, encryption. And at the same time, uh, the same actors, uh, governments and institutions, may also have an interest to weaken encryption, both for intelligence gathering objectives and for law enforcement objectives. So uh, basically this, uh, uh, this tension uh, has, uh, has been there for a long time and uh, uh, with the Snowden revelations especially, it has been brought to the forefront when it comes to uh, the communications between uh, private citizens. And I guess that this has been uh, uh, really what, uh, what has been most uh, Uh, problematic and sensational in the Snowden revelations was that uh, uh, the, the breaking of the maintaining of encryption was not a matter, not only a matter of uh, uh, like big actors of cybersecurity, but was really about the daily um, habits of citizens uh, and uh, uh, the, the ways in which they communicate with, uh, with one another on a very mundane uh, basis. Mm. And why do you think there's, there's, there's this big difference, at least in my opinion, uh, about the way the, let's say, privacy protections are and, and state regulatory measures are enacted in, in the offline world versus the online world. 
because you could argue that you know things that happen online also happen offline or that you know the state and and other powers that be would uh, i don't know would would want to to interfere with our offline lives as well as our online lives right but there's a there's a difference between definitions and protection of privacy online and definitions and and protection of privacy offline in regards to to state to state actors yes well i think that first of all uh, encryption actually is uh, uh, it has been argued by uh, um, some authors that um, it goes precisely in the way that you just described that is to say make it so that the protection of privacy in the offline world and in the online world is uh, uh, a little bit uh, more alike <laughs> and that uh, uh, encryption goes in the sense of repairing uh, um, the asymmetry uh, uh, asymmetrical uh, information uh, differences between uh, the big actors such as uh, uh, institutions but also the some actors in the in the private uh, in the private sector and uh, the, the common citizen uh, so to speak uh, mm -hmm. so in this sense uh, I would say that encryption uh, narrows both uh, both worlds down uh, or approaches them um, in the I guess that um, it is now uh, there has been some unprecedented challenges posed by uh, big data and algorithms and uh, the interest of uh, uh, powerful uh, private and public actors to uh, collect as many data as possible uh, with respect to citizens, consumers, <laughs> and, and mm. so on. Uh, and that is what, uh, what has made the difference between how the uh, communications and the security of communications in the offline world used to be uh, and, uh, uh, and the advent of the digital era. I guess that the, the quantity of data and the possibility of doing things with them uh, is what really stands out in this particular uh, period of time with respect to uh, to the past one, and uh, several of um, uh, the art articles of uh, the GDPR and uh, the most recent instruments that uh, seek to better protect privacy in the digital world go a little bit in in the sense of uh, uh, making sure that uh, actors that can do many things with big data. Uh, are a bit regulated in what uh, they, they plan to do with them precisely mm -hmm. because of that, that is the, the real novelty about it. Mm. And I can I can just connect or, or uh, feed on your on your response and ask you the next question. So how do you see the role of, of state regulators in the field of privacy and personal data? In our uh, event that focused that focused on the on the issue of Splinternet, mm -hmm. both uh, Renata Via and, and Julien Rossi um, expressed some issues with the idea of internet nat nationalization, so that you know taking taking the web back from from private actors and putting them putting it in in the hands of of so to say the the people or or the states. So mm -hmm. how do where do the states fit into the, the big picture of, of internet governance? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that, uh, so it has been argued in the past that uh, uh, states had been uh, uh, disoriented, if not uh, outright pushed away uh, from internet governance uh, 
uh, by uh, the the state of uh, some some people had called inter internet exceptionalism or well the, the fact that uh, uh, the internet was not uh, uh, could not comport no, any longer with uh, national borders and uh, was was no longer uh, reductible to the the concept of jurisdiction and so on so uh, the state had been uh, uh, arguably pushed a little bit on the side in that period. Um, I think that now there is this uh, large uh, acceptance and the conception of a return of the state, uh, most largely due to what you just described to the, uh, the returns of um, internet nationalisms and the idea that uh, uh, states can actually do a lot of things to regulate what is happening in their national internets. And this can extend to uh, logical and physical uh, infrastructures if they seek uh, uh, independence, digital independence, or even uh, digital isolation as a um, desirable goal. But of course, this carries uh, other challenges, such as the fact that, uh, uh, well, the global internet does have a lot of advantages, and this is why it has uh, been thriving for, uh, for so long. Uh, and uh, so the idea of uh, uh, putting parts of the internet in silos, uh, whether they are managed by nation states or by uh, large private, private sector actors, uh, is in many instances, not such a good idea or can carry significant collateral damage and also make the internet less interesting and less plural a place for many of us. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, uh, expanding on, on the notion of, of protection of personal data on um, you know, freedom, freedom of access and, and other, um, let's say, trends that try to protect the uh, digital rights of, of the users, we're seeing a trend of political solutions that uh, rely on, let's say, co-regulation models, right? So part mm -hmm. of the power gets put into the hands of, of the end user, part of the power gets retained by, by let's say, some regulating body or, or by the state. So we have cookie directive, e-privacy, GDPR, and they all, in, in one point, heavily rely on, on the end user, right? The end user is in charge of, you know, reporting these issues. The end user has a right or has, has the power to, to uh, you know, request the deletion, the movement of the data and so on. Mm -hmm. So how do you see the user adapting to these, to these roles that are, at one hand, very empowering, but on the other hand, it, at least in my opinion, sort of ignore the issue of, you know, digital literacy uh, capabilities of individual users that are not the same and, and so on. Yeah, actually, it's interesting because this is actually to come back to encryption and what we described in our, in our book with Xenia is, is actually a, uh, an issue that is, uh, that is going on currently in, in the field of encrypted uh, uh, secure messaging. So we have uh, looked at a number of case studies that uh, uh, have um, examined how uh, post uh, Snowden revelations, uh, the target audience of secure messaging applications um, has been far from uh, being limited to tech-savvy groups or activist groups, as perhaps it used to be more in the past. You can see several projects of uh, encrypted secure messaging that are aimed at a really widespread use. Uh, and this is a major change uh, in, uh, in the field because for, for a long time, a majority of the technical crypto community considered that uh, 
um, greater user friendliness and usability could really realize in practice a desire for large scale adoption. Uh, and they were considering that the ease of use and comfort was a secondary issue to the soundness of the technology. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually in, in, uh, in observing this, we have uh, went back into all this literature, especially by social, social movement scholars and so on, that uh, uh, has suggested already that um, if developers give comparatively little attention to this use, uh, to this issue of the ease of use and of the comfort, this implies that users are uh, go, go through a forced responsabilization because it places all the burden of getting up to speed on them. It is up to users to acquire the competence to compensate for uh, the technical artifacts lack of, of usability. And so, uh, for example, as Becky Kazansky has argued a few years back, uh, this goes to the detriment, for example, of the development of uh, uh, resilient, truly resilient, uh, collective digital security strategies and in the end it delegates technical matters back to um, developers and uh, to techies only even if there is a widespread societal desire to develop these technologies for social justice so it, there is this uh, uh, this risk of uh, carrying on this uh, uh, forced responsabilization and this delegation of technical matters as uh, the true key to uh, to empowerment that that goes back to the technical community only mm. and and what do you see as a as a solution to this issue so another another topic that ties into what you just said is the so-called ethical development, right? And, and responsible tech and services development that has been popping up um, uh, more, uh, more often in, in the recent years. But again, to be sort of critical about it, I think it's just a, like a knee-jerk reaction to the, to the increased pressures of, of the regulators, right? So the companies are sort of misusing the, the, the term self-regulation and we've seen that in in journalism which is which is my background and i've seen it time over time mm -hmm. uh, that the self-regulatory calls for for action are are popping up in in the minute after the the state announces some regulatory frameworks right so to say the the industry or the the tech landscape is saying oh no you know the state you you have to hang back will will take care of it by by self-regulating uh, yeah, well, I I think that um, there is this. Uh, there have been a a few uh, approaches that uh, uh, so both put the user at the uh, at the core, uh, recognize that you, the user is really at the core and should not be assumed as this uh, entity that is uh, uh, either uh, cited and mobilized by. Uh, actors already in power or uh, or like a, a mere spectator of what uh, of what regulation is about uh, made by other people i think that uh, it is worth citing at least two of these uh, uh, these interesting uh, approaches that I've seen uh, in, in the past few years. Uh, one is uh, the work of um, uh, Stefania Milan on uh, uh, data activism. Uh, so th this idea that uh, uh, there can be a set of uh, socio-technical tactics, resistance, mobilizations uh, that really adopt a critical approach 
towards uh, massive data collection and per pervasive uh, surveillance. And so data activism is really meant to represent the next step in, in the form of uh, digital activism. And uh, basically it points out that uh, given that uh, the processes of datafication and the different uses of uh, uh, technologies of communication for political purposes are increasingly pervasive, uh, widespread and diverse, um, data activism can acquire an appeal for a lot of more diverse communities uh, of, uh, of concerned citizens that might very well extend beyond uh, what was previously only a tech activist uh, engagement mm -hmm. that still pertain to, uh, to a niche. And so um, broadening this, uh, this frame, for example, is a, is a widely discussed concern in a, in a number of, uh, of encryption projects. Uh, and uh, the second uh, the second approach is this uh, uh, lens of data justice that has been proposed by uh, Lina Densi, Carne Hintz and uh, and colleagues. Um, and uh, basically, with this, they want to say that uh, um, on one hand, uh, citizenship and the possibility of uh, the agency of citizens in today's internet is really profoundly shaped uh, by massive data collection and uh, and commodification, but also that. Uh, currently, user rights and practices concerning online privacy and surveillance are still conceived by the state and by regulation, regulators first and foremost in very highly individualized terms. So it is, uh, we go back to this issue of the responsibility of the user and the forced responsabilization of the user. It is about what, what users learn to do. And what they uh, and what we allow them to do, and what we can uh, we forbid them to do. So uh, individualizing these dynamics of privacy according to this data justice uh, approach uh, does uh, engender, does produce, or at least maintains a context of inequality because uh, uh, it is really about transferring responsibility to engage and to negotiate uh, issues such as citizenship, privacy and security in the digital age really onto the individuals. So it, uh, uh, it reduces the possibility of a, of a collective engagement in, in these kinds of issues that are de facto very relational uh, and, uh, and collective issues. Uh, and so is risk and so the establishment of, uh, of threat models. Mm. So, so another possible solution that that you've uh, you've studied, or uh, another topic that you've covered in your in your texts, is is the the concept of decentralized decentralized web, right? It, decentralized web has been offered as a solution for for many many years in terms of you know. Um, uh, uh, busting open these giant intermediaries data silos that are now running basically the the internet but at the same time you know we've seen several of these you know decentralized experiments fail to adopt so to say critical mass or to to really become become um, uh, become i guess to say the the prevalent mechanism in mm -hmm. in the in the landscape so what are some of the lessons we've we've learned in in you know uh, by doing these decentralized experiments that have not reached their full potential or that have not not offered uh, let's mm -hmm. say a relevant uh, um, counter counter offer to the to the centralized web that we now and we know and we now live in. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, yeah, thanks for this question. It's a it's a long-standing and I think incredibly interesting one when it comes to uh, to the internet. Uh, so um, first of all, I'd like to uh, yeah, to slightly nuance uh, the uh, the last uh, sentence you you just uh, uh, you just proposed in the sense that. Um, it is true that a lot of uh, the decentralized applications have not uh, reached their full potential, but at the same time, uh, and generally when the uh, the issue or the reason why they existed was, was not primarily the fact that they are decentralized, uh, there has been uh, several decentralized systems that have widely worked and that have been taken up uh, by, by users. For example, Skype used to be a peer-to-peer -peer and a decentralized system in its early days. And the reason why it worked was that, uh, well, the peer-to-peer -peer part allowed it to smoothly work from a technical standpoint. Uh, it was uh, it allowed it to, to scale and it, it allowed to work well. But uh, what, uh, what mattered to users was not in itself the fact that it was decentralized. It was about uh, uh, getting... A, uh, free phone calls over the internet instead of paying uh, large amounts of money to their uh, telecom operators. Uh, and uh, well, a similar uh, a similar discourse can, could be made for uh, file sharing applications. Peer-to-peer uh, -peer is well suited to it. And uh, not all file sharing applications are uh, in, and, in and by itself uh, um, illegal. And peer-to-peer uh, -peer worked very well to support such a system, and this is why uh, it had uh, such success. Um, the, the first uh, cryptocurrencies uh, are decentralized, and uh, but the, the very reason why so many people turned to them uh, was, uh, was that uh, there was a deep uh, crisis of uh, um, credibility uh, of, uh, of institutions of uh, the financial and economic world. And so they were looking for alternative means uh, and so on. So it, when, uh, when there is, uh, what is in common with all these uh, this successful decentralized projects is that they were able to obtain a critical mass of users. And I would argue that uh, what, uh, what did not happen for many others that did not reach their full potential was that this did not uh, happen. Uh, because uh, when there is no critical mass of users, decentralized systems work uh, worse. Uh, mm. And uh, um, unfortunately, um, there, is, there is this need of a terribly delicate and problematic phase in which uh, users need to invest themselves in the decentralized system, even if it does not work well yet uh, hmm. for it to be able to, to work better in the future. And uh, this is, uh, uh, unless there is a, a community around uh, the system that really uh, A, understands this and uh, B, finds motivations that uh, do not strictly pertain to the technical development of the system. Uh, this is the cause of uh, so many involutions and failures in, in the centralized systems, I, I would argue. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I was just uh, to, uh, to follow up or, or to sort of guide you into into the direction of do you see the the um, the situation uh, improving over the years? So you do you see the even the let's say the the developers of decentralized systems and uh, the decentralized systems users do they learn from their mistakes as we as we move along? Uh 
I, I think that they, uh, they do. So um, there is this, um, I think that Snowden uh, and the Snowden revelations, among other things, uh, has uh, has brought uh, at least in the field of uh, uh, of encryption, and uh, I think that we could uh, see similar phenomena in uh, in other cases. Um, this idea that uh, um, working towards a seamless technology and a discrete technology, and uh, not uh, not making. Uh, the systems primarily about the technology, uh, but uh, using the technology as a means to to really achieve uh, other aims that would best suit the users. Uh, this has been much more widely taken up uh, by, for example, the the crypto community uh, post uh, post Snowden uh, than it was uh, than it was before. So in this sense, I think that. Uh, uh, not that we have learned from our mistakes, but that uh, uh, there has been a more widespread recognition of uh, uh, what it uh, what it would take uh, to uh, uh, to improve things. Uh, and uh, the second aspect is really about what I was mentioning the the collective dimension uh, of uh, of some uh, uh, phenomena. Uh, supported by uh, computing and networking uh, technologies, uh, this idea that uh, uh, the the sum of the uh, of the users of a system is really about uh, so much more than uh, um, each single part <laughs> of it, and that, uh, um, for example, uh, issues such as uh, risk 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 perception, risk assessment, and so on are really deeply uh, relational and, uh, and collective uh, phenomena. Uh, we should consider ourselves at high risk if we have uh, uh, one person at high risk in our set of contacts uh, mm -hmm. and, and so on. So I think that this is much more um, understood and widespread nowadays on both the developer side and uh, uh, it starts to find its way into, uh, into the regulators uh, as well. This is, um, I think, why uh, among the many among the, the few novelties really that uh, uh, instruments such as the GDPR uh, brought uh, was about um, data portability, for example. Uh, th this article of GDPR to me is very interesting in that sense because it basically recognizes that uh, um, the, the choice of a design, of a particular design of a tool and uh, of uh, taking up a tool from a practical standpoint for a user is a lot about uh, where other users are <laughs> and what they do with their data and not just uh, where that particular user is and what he or she does with his own data or her own data. Mm. So it's, uh, for me, in this sense, uh, we are moving forward in the right sense. Mm. That's great. And, and just to, before we, we wrap it up, one, one final topic, uh, the media framing of, let's say, human rights in the digital age, but generally speaking of, of all the issues that pertain to let's say, uh, the role of a citizen in, in the digital sphere or online. So, so what are your thoughts on, on the media framework that usually accompanies media reports on these issues, right? You've mentioned Snowden, we've seen several times media reporting on, on the issues of, let's say, data breaches or surveillance scandals like the, the NSO that are, that are mostly, you know, these 
so to say, scandalous reports of mm. of uh, that are that are maybe suitable for for a more of a tabloid <laughs> tabloid mm-hmm. journalism instead of instead of serious analysis. And on the other hand, you know, constant or relatively constant failures of interpretation the of the wider concept and issues that are that are responsible for or that are that are encompassing these these scandals so do you see the media playing um, sort of like sharing the responsibility for the the lack of let's say political solutions and for for the lack of uh, even solutions in in the self-regulatory measure uh, field uh, so we can we can finally move from oh my god another data breach oh my god another you know uh, 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 privacy or or surveillance scandal well i'll be optimistic now and uh, and say that i have luckily seen both <laughs> unfortunately enough it is easier to tweet about uh, uh, Elon Musk uh, uh, wanting to to acquire uh, Twitter or or the latest uh, data breach, as you say, but at the same time the media has have also been behind uh, some of the most uh, thorough. Uh, uh, inquiries and revelations of, of the past decade about this, right? Uh, that they have been, uh, uh, especially in collaboration with uh, with whistleblowers. I, I, I Snowden has been mentioned, but I'm thinking also about uh, Christopher Wiley and uh, his collaboration with uh, uh, with Carol Cadwallader. Uh, and uh, uh, so this has also this could not have happened uh, without uh, traditional media as well, right? So I guess that uh, what uh, um, the key towards uh, making good analysis analysis more more shared is uh, uh, is about uh, is about all of us right and uh, and social media in in turn uh, could could have had something could have something to do with it by uh, perhaps uh, gearing up their algorithms a little bit so that it uh, it is no longer easier to share superficial information uh, than uh, uh, thorough analysis right it is it is quite well known that uh, uh, it is uh, well generally it is a sensational pieces of news that uh, circulate a lot better than uh, um, than, than good analysis, right? But, mm. uh, but, uh, but I'm, I'm hoping it can change, and uh, in some ways it has already. But uh, but but, but just to just to play devil's advocate, do you think that that the the makers of these tools and services, uh, to to put it bluntly, do you think they know what they're doing? Because time after time, and in even we've seen it in in Facebook leaks, uh, like discussing the. Uh, the new uh, the new regulatory uh, regulatory frameworks coming from the EU uh, with Facebook developers, you know, stating almost plainly, you know, there is no way we can do the things they are requiring or they are going to require of us to do. I'm talking about you know uh, uh, opening uh, opening up the the black box of of algorithms and you know the thing that you've mentioned. Uh, Decentralizing algorithms to be so sensitive about about scandalous scandalous reports and and so on. So, do you think that the tech community is actually <laughs> capable of of you know solving the, the the Gordian knot that they basically put together? 
Okay, so the, okay, the the technical community is actually a very heterogeneous thing when when it comes to uh, when it comes to this. Yes, I have uh, I have a very very little uh, very little faith in uh, in the willingness of uh, of some CEOs of big uh, big tech companies to do what you just described. Uh, I um, I think it can also of course depend uh, once again on on the on the collective uh, for sure uh, and. Uh, uh, um, in terms of the what the uh, what the high hierarchy of uh, of these big uh, big companies can uh, can be can be forced to do, uh, I think that uh, the Europe and European regulators are are trying to. Uh, uh, to do uh, to do some things that might work, we, we will see how the digital uh, single market, uh, sorry, the digital service exact uh, plays uh, plays out. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, well, it, it goes in the sense of uh, uh, okay, we we will try to do consultation and we will try to uh, to speak as much as possible with you guys. But uh, at some point, uh, we can also make it interesting uh, financial wise to, <laughs> to try to try and do and do more but uh, yeah in this particular sense uh, uh, big tech platforms really do not have a good track record i i, I agree with you and that, that there is no uh, there is no particular indication that they will uh, have a a big change of heart in the in, in the closer in the close future. Mm. Uh, I I think that uh, there are these uh, um, these interesting uh, solutions that could be supported as a European solution. And I think that uh, there was a symbolic act by uh, some European institutions in this regard recently. Uh, it would be to uh, invest in uh, federated uh, solutions that are not strictly uh, decentralized ones and that are not centralized, uh, but uh, they are basically solutions in which uh, users can uh, delegate a part uh, of their um, uh, of their willingness to have a, a more ethical solution and, um, and a, a technical solution that is more in tune with uh, uh, their values and uh, a certain conception of privacy they might have uh, without saying, okay, now if I want to my data to be protected in this way, I need to um, get a computer science degree and uh, uh, read a manual on how to run my own server and so on. So this is the good thing about uh, federation uh, and federated networks that uh, you can uh, uh, try and find uh, what is the middle ground for you in terms of uh, uh, delegation of trust uh, to to your tech providers mm. so excellent great thank you so much for for joining us francesca thank you for your for your thoughts on on the matter and uh, wishing you best of luck with with your future endeavors thank, <laughs> thank you. you thanks for having me